Hi, Two Pills listeners. We are back. We are so grateful to have you as listeners for season one, and we hope you enjoyed our Two Pills tips as well as our interviews with innovative educators. We are excited to bring you even more Two Pills tips in season two, as well as some wonderful interviews, including the one that you are about to hear up next. If you have something that you want to hear about, whether it's a tip for working with students in health sciences, active learning strategies for the classroom, or for experiential settings, let us know. You can follow us on at Two Pills Podcast on Twitter. You can visit our website, twopillspodcast.com, or go ahead and send us an email at twopillspodcast, that's T-W-O, pillspodcast at gmail.com. I have been out expanding our Two Pills family, and now that I am back from maternity leave, we are so excited to be recording again and sharing our stories with you. We are welcome to hear your questions, or if you want to suggest a topic, please let us know. Thanks again for listening, and welcome to Season 2. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Two Pills Podcast. Today we have Dr. Jenny Van Amberg. She is a clinical professor and assistant dean for academic affairs at Northeastern University, the Bouvet College of Health Sciences School of Pharmacy. Her educational scholarship interests include active learning and teaching methodologies, faculty and peer evaluation, faculty development, as well as metacognition and mindfulness learning strategies. In her free time, she likes to spend time with her family, watching her daughters dance, boating, health and wellness like yoga and running, sewing, crocheting, and traveling. Welcome, Dr. Van Amberg. Good, good afternoon. So I know we talked a little bit about your bio, but could you just go ahead and start us off by telling us about yourself and your teaching style? Certainly. So first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. Um, a little bit about myself, I think I want to start off by saying if you ever thought, would I ever be an educator or professor, um, everybody is that. And so I want to start with that philosophy because I think a lot of times those who um, we interact with, our students, look at us as professor only. And yet I feel every day in what we do, particularly when I work with patients, we're educators. Um, and so I try to really embrace that when I'm teaching students or when I'm teaching patients that in the end, Um, learning is the critical component of my teaching. So I can teach, but if the other end doesn't learn, then have I taught? Um, And so that's what I sort of base everything that I do in and outside of the classroom is how do I know that the person sitting in front of me or next to me has learned? That's great. When did you know that you wanted to be a teacher? I didn't. So again, sort of speaking to the people who say, I don't really know what I want to do. Um, I was approached as a freshman in my undergrad program by a biology teacher, Dr. Uh, Rick Spohr, who unfortunately has passed, but he's been sort of the inspiration for me, who saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself. And that was in our lab. He came over to me one day and said, you have a great knack for educating your colleagues, your peers. Um, Would you be willing to be a teaching assistant in the lab? And I thought, well, what do I have to lose? So I taught in the lab all during my undergrad and through my graduate program. And it wasn't until one point, probably it was right before I was finished up my graduate program, that he said, have you ever thought about being a professor? And I gave the, are you kidding me? I have no (laughs) desire to do that. 
it really wasn't until my residency, right, right before I started my residency, that I found a very unique at the time. There was not a whole lot of ambulatory care-based residencies at that point. Mm-hmm. And it was a dual residency in ambulatory care and adult teaching and learning. And cool. I applied for it and thought, really, this is something that I have an interest in that I didn't know. So I did that. I was asked to teach, and I thought, this is really a lot of fun. And I guess I do have that ability to engage in, with the learners and to help. The thing that I find most rewarding is that light bulb goes off. But again, like I said, um, it's not something I ever said, oh, this is what I want to do. In fact, I thought I wanted to be a pediatric pharmacist. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that whole aspect of you know what you think you might want to do doesn't always come out to be what you're able to do. And I think you know people see things in you that you may not see in yourself, and it's good to engage in it and ask questions and maybe explore a little bit more. Because I wouldn't be here if he hadn't tapped me for that. And I think that's such a good point. I know when I have students who I think would seem, like you said, to have the personality traits or the desire to teach, and I really try to encourage that if I have them on rotation, you know, to say, to just highlight that if you've been thinking about it, you should definitely do it, you know, um, and, and yeah. try to have those conversations with them about what are they worried about, you know, with, with a teaching position and things like that. Well, and again, I think my passion for it has definitely caught others to the point, you know, I, with a colleague, he and I have actually, he, like myself, he and I went to undergrad and he taught in the lab as well, and we're faculty now together here at Northeastern. Oh, fun. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it's a a story because we have taught together for so long that we co-teach and don't even realize it. Like, people are crazy, right? (laughs) Um, You finish each other's sentences. And we joke that we've known each other longer than we've known our spouses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it goes back to uh, because of our passion and understanding how learning occurs, like, again, going back to evidence-based. We practice evidence-based medicine. And I really began to be engaged with education and theory and all that when I went back and started saying, what's the evidence to support learning? So if we practice evidence-based medicine, we should be practicing evidence-based teaching. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's where I thought, well, this is interesting. I can, I can do this. I like this. It's very interesting to learn how one learns. And again, because of being a pharmacist, also a health educator, how I look at it, these principles cross over. And so I think it makes me a better pharmacist because I understand learning or I can give people information in a variety of different ways that meets what helps them to be good at what they need to do. Um, I think that's a great point, yeah, that you're able to then educate not only students, but other trainees, your patients in a variety of different ways. So that's great. Um, Along the way with this, you know, desire for learning, are there any, um, or to know more about how people learn, are there any books or podcasts or websites that have been helpful to you that you would recommend to someone? So I will say probably the best book that I have found, and I and I find this to be a good book, um, given the role which I serve in in the co- in the school. Um, I teach in the pre-pharmacy freshman class, and this book that I've been sort of touting for the last year and a half is the New Science of Learning, mm-hmm. and it helps to get some of the evidence behind how does one learn, and in it, it's not just the memorization, which is what students think, but it, it brings in those other things that I like to do outside, right? The wellness. So how does one learn? How do they know that they've learned that metacognition, knowing what they know and knowing what they don't know, mm-hmm. but the importance of how your daily activities, sleep, eating, and exercising 
is so critical to the learning process. Um, and so I would say that that's my most recent sort of passion of, you know, the book that I would recommend people to read mm-hmm. is if you are engaging with students, particularly, I mean, that students, usually students who are showing up at your door are either fabulous and want to do leadership things or <laughs> they're the ones who need some academic support. Uh-huh. Um, you don't get the middle one. Right. But, but those who come in and you can just, you can sense the stress and anxiety coming off them is to have that real conversation of, how are you doing? Because mm-hmm. if you're not doing well, it doesn't matter all the other stuff that you do. Um, and so I have. I mean, I, my go-to when the students are in here to say, here's a book. You need, it's 100 pages. You can <laughs> read it in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But you have to find the sweet spot of taking care of yourself. And the analogy I like to give with that is, if you haven't seen the Disney movie Inside Out, Right, that one where they right. get into the emotions yeah. and that girl, and she's going through her transition, her puberty, and those how do we form short term experiences into long term memories and how did they go? It does, in the book, it explains how things become short term to long term in the memory, and that's just a good analogy for that. If you haven't watched that, go watch the movie and watch how when things transition or when something is meaningful to her, how she can engage with that more and how can she can stick with it. Um, and so again, it's giving them something, you know, outside of you need to study longer, you need to study more. Mm-hmm. That may not be what they need. I, I completely agree with you. And I'm always amazed, you know, whether I'm coordinating a course or if it's one of my advisees and the student comes to you and you find out everything going on in their personal lives. Like you said, it's so easy to say like, oh, well, they didn't perform as well on this assessment of whatever it is. You know, they just, like you said, need to study more or differently or whatever. But I think that personal component is so important. And I'm always um, or often surprised by everything that's going on in the student's personal life outside of school. And they, and they try to compartmentalize, just mm-hmm. as we do. And I think that's Absolutely. the other thing that I, that I really engage with the students on is, you all think that we have everything going for us. So let me share some of our struggles. Because we're, <laughs> uh-huh. we're not perfect. We're human beings. And, you know, life happens. And we have to figure out how it works together. Absolutely. So with your different hats that you wear, what would you say is your favorite part of your job? Oh, God. Um, I would say the favorite part of my job, no matter where it is, is when you can help whoever it is, my patients, my colleagues, um, my students, the residents who work with me, find their passion Mm -hmm. and find what makes them happy or they get a positive outcome. So for a patient, it's where they have felt like they've been pushed up against the wall, they can't do anything more. You ask the right questions, you engage them, and all of a sudden they're turning it around and they're feeling better. Mm-hmm. Um, for the student who feels like, I, you know, my statement all the time to students are, you wouldn't have gotten into the pharmacy program if you weren't smart. So mm-hmm. this is not a reflection of smart. There's other things going on. Let's fix that. And when they, you know, I got a text over the weekend, hey, Dr. JVA, thanks so much for talking to me about sleep. I've started a sleep habit I am now in bed at 8 30 every night and I can't tell you how much better it is for me to learn and retain those are the things that I thrive on working with the residents and seeing where they start Mm -hmm. and then where they end you know I have great colleagues out there I'm not all about the clinical knowledge I'm about the experience Um, there's so much more you can learn but it's the experience that really can help shape that for you absolutely 
those are the things that make me really excited. Yeah. So in what, you know, since you have experience with, of course, students, residents, and faculty colleagues, if you had a magic wand, what would you fix about pharmacy education? Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if this should be on the podcast or not. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think it is time for our profession to say, at what point do we have enough educational program uh-huh. and at what point is it do we need more or do we need to do things more effectively mm-hmm. um, so from an education like what would I love to fix I would really like to look at so I can speak from ours integrated curriculum our integrated curriculum producing better pharmacists mm-hmm. versus the traditional curriculums that we used to have that were a little bit more separate. I think there's a mix. I'm not sure it has to be fully integrated or not, but what? how much is too much when we're teaching this well? That would be the other thing. I don't need to make people experts in what I am. I need to make them understand the foundation so they can build upon it. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, you know, here's the, this is where I sort of disagree with some of my colleagues. People want to teach what they practice in, what have they specialized in, whatever they've become excellent in. And I feel as an educator, if you're a good education educator and understand educational theory and how one learns, it is sometimes better for you to teach something that you're not an expert in. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you can really get down to the foundations and the critical key concepts that one must know versus getting lost in the specifics and the details. Um, yeah. That's what specialization's for. That's what postgraduate training is for. But not trying to make everybody an expert in the classroom of what you are, because you weren't at that their point. So reminding yourself where you are. Um, so again, in the education, focusing more on soft skills mm-hmm. and um, sort of you know that attitude and how you approach more so than being 100% driven by knowledge. And I think you make a great point in a couple of different ways because, I mean, just a couple of things that come to me are things like, um, you know, the fact that the content, a lot of the content that we're teaching students is going to be out of date in a year so mm-hmm. or three years at the most. Mm-hmm. And so really teaching them, like you said, those soft skills, how to learn, how to communicate, how to find things on their own, um, those things. But then also I really like what you mentioned as far as being more effective and kind of what came to mind for me is also being more efficient. I mean, I think we throw around the words IPE all the time because we all do. And since it's, you know, big in our it's lives now. It's the new buzzword. I know. And co-curricular and EPA and like all these things yeah. I'm trying to get my mind wrapped around. Um, but I think w- as far as IPE goes, part of the reason that I was really excited to do this podcast is because I think all of us who teach health sciences have similar learners. And I think, you know, why can't nursing teach us ethics? You know, why can't nursing faculty teach us ethics? And why can't pharmacy faculty teach medical students pharmacology and, you know, communication? I mean, I just think like, in addition, outside of the social administrative sciences, there's so much that we could get out of our silos and break out of our doors and be able to work with each other on doing. And, And like you said, be more effective and hopefully more efficient as well. Right, and not being stuck up on the fact that I am the pharmacist and I can only do this, or I am the, 
nurse and I can only do that. Like really stretching our boundaries to we are all in this together with the end goal, right? Yeah. What is that end goal and why do we have to have so many silos? I completely agree. Yeah. So kind of switching gears a little bit, but one thing I always like to ask is if you can speak to a teaching strategy that you've implemented that has gone well, and that can be in the classroom or experiential setting, and then also maybe one that didn't go so well. <laughs> and as always, we want to do the root cause analysis and start with the one that doesn't go so well, right? Because that's the one that's sure. easier for us to do. Yeah. It's hard for us to promote what's gone well. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with what's gone well only because it's going to challenge me to think differently. So... Um, I have been teaching the freshman intro to profession course um, for, I don't know, three or four years. I, I could say one of my, one of the challenges I have for 18 years, I've never taught the same course twice. I think it's great, but I also think sometimes, why do I do this to myself? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> um, but I know that about myself and I just embrace it because it's not going to change. And, and so I'm very um, sensitive to the critical lens of what can I do differently, what didn't go well. So I switched the intro course that was, um, you know, 100, 130 students in a large lecture class to team-based learning. And it was a lot, and it was a lot to get students to understand the accountability. You know, you're, I'm not coming in to teach you, you're going to teach yourself. And it has honestly taken me two to three years. I would say last year was the first year that sort of it clicked finally mm-hmm. of how to effectively engage those students and not have them feel like, I pay to come to school, she's right. not teaching me. Right. Um, so that has finally gone well. It finally has worked. And what I've done in terms of making it work is every year I thought, what, what worked and what didn't work? And what's finally made it work is I took this 130, 120, whatever the class size might be, and I broke them into smaller sections. And I brought in... Third, uh, P3 students to be facilitators in those sections with me. And the reason I think it works is because intro to the profession is not content heavy, yeah. but it's experience rich. Mm-hmm. So if I can bring in P3 students who have lived the curriculum, who understand they have, you know, in our program, we have our co-op program. Right. And so they can bring in clinical perspective or outside perspective of working with people and how to do that. The the evaluations have gone from not so good to we <laughs> learned so much out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I gave up ownership, right? I said, it doesn't have to be me. And, yeah. and I, and I brought this from parenting, you know, I have 13 year old twin girls mm-hmm. who I love, but they're 13 and that's enough said. Um, <laughs> and so for me to try to engage in them, I am mom. Mm-hmm. In, in mom's world, we were all there. Our parents don't know anything. How dare they think that they know this? Right. They don't, right? So I don't, I embrace other parents and other people that we're friends with to co-parent. You are welcome to talk to the child to the same thing I am because you know what? They're going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I brought that into the classroom. They're not going to listen to me, but they're going to listen to P3s because they look like them. They're closer to them. And so letting that be in its, organic fashion feed into the whole development and it also creates mentoring for them absolutely informs Um, those relationships like there's so much good stuff in what you're saying absolutely but what I really like about that too is I think you know any time that I've included students who are a little bit farther along in the program 
into the classroom, like you said, it is so much more effective. I think mm-hmm. students feel like they're com- more comfortable asking questions of these students. They have, there's just already kind of a little bit of a built-in respect there. And right. I can remember even just as recently as last year, um, I taught uh, skin and soft tissue infections, very, you know, normal content, whatever. <laughs> and I brought in one of my residents, a medical residents, to teach with me. And he was just there to kind of give the physician perspective on how does an incision and drainage go? And, you know, what are you worried about if you don't give antibiotics or if you do? And I probably got the most positive reviews of any class I've ever taught by just bringing in this doctor who, you know, he kind of has imposter syndrome because he's not an attending yet, you know, but he is a level, you know, kind of advanced from these students and it just all went so well. So I just, I love that idea of bringing in someone else. Like you said, it's not all about you as the faculty member. It's about the learning and, you know, it just brings a different layer by bringing in other people. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, my last question for you is what is your overall prescription for (laughs) success and happiness in this job? And then just in general, so I am a big proponent of work-life integration. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave up on the notion of trying to be balanced. Right. It's not realistic, and it will never happen. So you can watch and read about all the things that balancing, you know, you're going to document hours. And honestly, for me, all that does is stress me out. <laughs> um, so if I'm trying to be per- pertinent to I have to be, you know, so many hours in and so many hours out, it's just not going to work. Um, so... I, I have to say I don't work because I love what I do. And I think that's my biggest advice for your success and happiness is you've got to find something where when you go to work, it's not a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been blessed. I'm a very, I remind myself, I pinch myself every day that I'm fortunate to get up every day and to go to my, wherever it may be, right? My office at Northeastern or my practice site in Hyannis um, of I love what I get to do. And so it's easy for me. The downside to that is it's hard for me to stop working at times. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that work-life integration comes in. And so I have a great relationship with my administration that, you know, it's not about my face time. It's not about my hours here. It's about my productivity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing to my success and happiness is if I was a nine to five clock in clock out, it was very regimented. I don't think it would be for me, mm-hmm. but for me, it's the outcomes. And I have enough of my own internal motivation to produce and do the things I want to do. Um, so, you know, enjoy life. It goes by super, super fast and try to not get caught up on time. Um, I see lots of my colleagues trying to do the, well, I've clocked in X number of hours and I still are, positions in academia are not a 40-hour work week. They're not. Right. Some weeks are going to be more, and other times you're going to have other flexibility where they might be less. And it waxes and wanes. And so I know fall semester, super crazy, super intense, and it occupies a lot of my time. Spring semester, a little less. Summer, significantly less. And it's all about the balancing act of it comes and it goes, but it doesn't define my hours here or the work I do does not define whether I'm happy or not. What defines me being happy is in my feeling that I'm making a difference for my spouse, my children, 
the people I work with, and I ultimately in all of that, happy with who I am. And no one can do that for me. Only I can do that for myself. Absolutely. That was great. Thank you so much. You're welcome.